So welcome to this uh, Greenhouse Environmental Humanities book talk. Uh, and today we are joined by uh, Jessica Lee, uh, uh, author and environmental historian based in Berlin, uh, who has a new book out called Two Trees Make a Forest. So do you want to just uh, start then, Jessica? Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I can just show you guys the book. Uh, this is the UK edition, which uh, is already out now. Um, it's maybe a bit dark. Um, and the US and Canadian edition looks a bit like this, very similar. Um, and it will be out in June and uh, no, July and August for Canada and the US respectively. Um, just wave if you can't hear me properly, if there's any issue. Um, I figured I would tell you guys a little bit first of the context out of which this book arose and sort of the, the writing that I've been doing has, has arisen. Um, like many of us, I think, uh, my background was in the environmental humanities, um, originally in my master's and PhD, moving between environmental history and environmental aesthetics, um, very specifically in relation to British park landscapes, actually. Um, and so this might seem like a bit of a curveball in terms of books. Um, and the space I ended up occupying sort of towards the end of my doctorate was this sort of interstitial space that was really between maybe commercial nature writing, more popular nature writing, and scholarly work. Um, essentially, the path I took was that um, around the end of my PhD, I got a book deal to write my first book, Turning, uh, which sort of grew out of my doctoral field work, which I had done with Winter Swimmers um, on Hampstead Heath in England, um, but was a more narrative sort of book and allowed me the space to play between the things I was really drawn between, uh, drawn towards, so environmental histories and histories of science, art, language, and, and perhaps more embodied ways of, of knowing a place, whether through swimming or hiking, noticing. Um, so I think the form for me that this book takes and my previous book in a way was sort of a stepping away from perhaps a more academic text um, and out of the the books that I know are in the rest of this series is probably the least academic of all of them. Um, but it appealed to me, I think, because I liked the idea of, I guess, working with these open questions and of actually being able to write something in which I didn't have to make conclusions um, or even really arguments that there could be this space for play and exploration. Um, yeah, so, you know, not, not just to not have that pressure of, you know, fearing that I'd make an unsound argument or something like that. Um, mostly because I felt like my own relationship with non-human nature in many ways was, was a messy thing and I needed a sort of um, less rigid space in which to explore that. Um, so this book, Two Trees Make a Forest, it also comes out of the same sort of space. Um, but in a lot of ways was also motivated, I think, by a situation that I perceived once I got into, I guess, nature writing um, more concretely, once I had written my first book and, and was sort of occupying a bit of a space in publishing. Um, you know, and it was something I had perceived, and I know many had also perceived and noticed with regards to nature writing and specifically the new nature writing as it's been termed. Um, you know, as well as the, the much lengthier history of the genre. And that was this issue with a sort of authoritative view um, of a narratorial voice that, how do I put it, um, I guess allowed a lot of nature writers for a very long time to position themselves 
as experts, right? And as experts in the landscape without a lot of clarity, I think, to readers um, as to where that comes from or how that was cultivated. Um, so it was something that I was really preoccupied with. Um, and then also, you know, Kathleen Jamie's idea of the, with the lone enraptured male, right? This was something that was in the back of my head. Um, and I should say it's an area that I think has really been changing quite beautifully in, you know, in the past few years. And when I began this book in 2016, I felt like there necessarily wasn't, there wasn't necessarily already a lot of conversation um, or space to have a conversation about that. Um, I wanted to be able to write a book that was able to ask questions about who belonged in the landscape and how migration and personal migration stories and wider migration stories, stories of empire and colony, um, how those could shape our perspectives on what constitutes non-human nature and our ways of belonging in it. And I know these are conversations I think that at least in my work, was something that I really saw in, in a lot of the academic work that I've been doing through my doctorate. But it didn't always come across when I was reading a lot of the more commercial nature writing texts that I really enjoyed reading. There was a gap. So this book sort of comes out of that motivation to, to you know, sort of build a bridge, but also just to create that space, um, partly for very personal reasons. Um, yeah, I, it was really lovely. Um, I listened to Bastropa's talk a couple weeks ago about the Arctic, and I, I really liked the way she phrased this um, idea of the book being motivated uh, by a sort of personal fascination or interest, or perhaps we might call it an obsession. I feel like interest is a very light word for the kinds of things that motivate books like this. Um, Two Trees, for me, is a book that comes out of a very personal obsession. Um, and it's, as I mentioned, it's not in keeping, uh, choosing to write a book about Taiwan is not in keeping with my career trajectory, my educational trajectory. Um, I didn't study East Asian history or landscape. Um, it grew out of personal relationships. Um, my mom's from Taiwan, my grandparents were from China, and I would say in 2016, when I felt really compelled to start working on this book, it was a period when I was really beginning to notice, I think, the ways in which I'd left behind a sort of personal heritage, um, not just in my personal life, but also in my work. Um, you know, I was writing about England, which, you know, I, I'm very interested by still, but I felt like I'd been sort of letting some things slip. Um, and I had moved to Germany a couple of years before that. And I think the thing that it's sort of a, you know, a switch that flipped was when I realized that I spoke German better than I could speak Mandarin. And that was a really like a very personal, I guess, shock for me. And it was something that really motivated me, I think, to start thinking more seriously about that side of my family and that history. Um, so that was the sort of mood I, I was in. Uh, and it coincided uh, with a discovery in my family. Um, my grandmother died that year and, you know, she was, how do I put it? Some might just say difficult, very difficult. Um, and for many reasons, um, she lived through the war in Nanjing. She grew up there and, you know, lost her family after 1949, which a lot of people did. Um, but essentially after she died, we were cleaning up her apartment and we discovered two items. 
one of which was a letter slash memoir, which was written by my grandfather as he was developing Alzheimer's and he had died many years previously. Um, but this letter turned out to be, um, yes, a memoir sort of tracing his life um, growing up in sort of post May 4th China. Um, and then as a flying tiger in the Air Force in the Second World War, and then going on to Taiwan, where he was a fairly senior Air Force colonel under the Kuomintang, under, under martial law. Um, the second thing we found was a phone bill, um, which had a number of calls to China on it. Um, this was significant to us because until that point, and this is, you know, four years ago, um, we had always been told in my family that all contact with family in the mainland had been lost in 1949. Um, my mother dialed the numbers and it turned out actually to be family. Um, so we'd had this sort of hidden family story, the hidden memoir, and me wanting to write about, you know, different kinds of angles in nature writing. And so that's sort of where this book comes from. Um, let me have a sip of water. So in a way, it's a book that's actually about not being an expert um, and a book about trying to find ways to know a place, um, especially when you're under that personal pressure of feeling like you, you ought to belong or you ought to know because this is your culture in some way. That was sort of a, a constant nag in the back of my head while working on it. Um, and to tell the story of deciphering those things. So deciphering the landscape, deciphering linguistic things that I perhaps didn't know how to handle, um, you know, but also family stories and the evasions and complications that they entail, um, as well as colonial histories, very particular ones in Taiwan in the 17th century, um, and then under Qing rule, under Japanese rule, under the nationalists and mar martial law, of which, as I mentioned, my family was, was a part. Um, so I wanted to sort of combine that with languages that in some way, I guess you could say I could speak, right? Which was to say, okay, what is my background? What is my training? And so that is where this book also enrolls. It's a lot of botanical and uh, geological history. Um, so looking at histories of plant conquest in Taiwan and um, histories of seismology and things like that. So just sort of playing and exploring as a way of knowing a place. Um, yeah, and then, you know, that, that part is there, and then there were these sort of more minute details of the landscape that w is not the kind of landscape I was trained to, to understand. Um, so it's a book exploring that. Like, one of the things I write about pretty early on is this feeling of sort of climbing a hillside and realizing I actually don't know any of the plant names, which, you know, given my background, you could stick me in like an English Heathland, and I, I would tell you everything that was there, and I would feel quite confident in myself. And it was quite shocking to me that after all this time, you could stick me in a place like Taiwan, and I would just be like, I, don't, I have no idea what is surrounding me right now. I don't know the names for these things. Like, I know that's a fern, and I know that's like a tarot leaf, but like, that's all I got, you know? Um, but the, if I went with my mother, for example, she could, she could name every single thing for me. And that was really revealing. I was really, I guess, drawn to that gap between us and drawn to, I guess, these sort of missing things and the lost things in between. Um, and that sort of messiness that comes from a migration history, I guess, in which you're not sure if that landscape is, is home, if it belongs to you in any respect. Um, I grew up in Canada, so 
and I live now in Germany, I lived in the UK for a long time, it's, it's a really messy question for me. Um, and if it's, you know, occupied territory, if it's something that can be regained and, and how we can sort of frame it. So it's a book that plays with the different lenses, I guess, of, of how we can approach that. Um, yeah, so it traces, you know, the book traces the finding of the letter and the phone bill um, and the deciphering of those things while also tracing a series of journeys through the landscapes. So there are moments, you know, where I, I go hiking up mountains and also considering the, you know, the Japanese colonial history of creating the trails on those mountains um, or, you know, sections where I go searching for endangered birds and look at the emergence of a conservation movement in Taiwan and the emergence of Taiwanese nature writing in relation to the same landscape that those birds are in. Um, so it's sort of, I, I hate to say it, it's a bit of a messy book in that way. It's, I can't tell you a single thing that it's about. It's about a lot of little things, um, but tied together sort of under those frameworks and under those themes. Um, essentially, it's, you know, it's about those efforts to get to know a place. Um, and I do think, yeah, it definitely, it, you know, it's a book that was researched in terms of how it came about, like was in the landscape walking around, um, but also very much, you know, in archives, um, the work of Emma Tang in particular, who's done a lot of work on visual cultural histories um, of Taiwan, that was incredibly informative for me. Um, but also, you know, drawing on fiction, drawing on contemporary writing by Taiwanese Americans, sort of taking all of those things and finding a way to tell a story. Um, so I just, I want to read a couple of pages for you guys, if that's okay. Do I have time? Okay. Um, so I'm going to read a bit from the beginning just so you can sort of get a sense of these two angles and how they interact. So the personal and sort of the more, I guess, you know, capital N nature writing. So this is from the beginning. I've learned many words for island. Isle, atoll, ayat, scary. They exist in archipelagos or alone, and always I have understood them by their relation to water. The English word for island, after all, comes from the German owl, from the Latin aqua, meaning water. An island is a world afloat. An archipelago is a place pelagic. The Chinese word for island knows nothing of water. For civilization grown inland from the sea, the vastness of mountains was a better metaphor. Dao, island, pronounced to in Taiwanese, is built from the relationship between earth and sky. The character contains the idea that a bird, miao, can rest on a lone, a lone mountain, shan. It's built into the character. Taiwan is just 89 miles wide, but in that distance, it climbs nearly 4,000 meters from sea level. The jump from sea level to precipitous peaks creates a wealth of habitats, such that the island sustains a range of forests much faster than its small footprint. The coasts are muffled with salt and sun-soaked mangrove, and moving south, thick tropical jungle grows. The wet heat of tropical rainforest thrums to temperate trees and their hardwoods climb to pines. Boreal forests with towering size of a house cathedral trees grow up from the middle slopes of the island. Beyond the tree line, the mountains peter out to prairie, cane grasslands widening to an alpine sky. Like topological rings on a map, the trees array themselves by elevation. Um, and then I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit and just read a little bit more to you. Names are rarely uncomplicated markers. So often they are born from the snares of conquest, from the declarations and misunderstandings of those who failed from, sailed from foreign shores. From China, Japan, Portugal, Spain, and the Netherlands. Ilha Formosa, Portuguese for beautiful island. 
Taiyun, an ethnonym taken from a local indigenous settlement, Ryukyu or Liukyu, the island arc of Okinawa, of which Taiwan marks a geologic end. Taiwan is rendered in script as Taiwan, it's written in characters, Tai for platform or terrace, one for bay, a foothold in a churning sea. Names here are buried and written over things, erupting from the ground underfoot the way faults emerge from a quake. Zhonghua Mingguo, Republic of China, as the country has officially been known since 1945, or that incendiary marker, Taiwan, province of China. Disruption is written in the island's stone, forged in movement, scattered with dormant volcanic hills, with slopes that rise from sea to sky so swiftly they cannot be captured in a single glance. It is a place that demands time and slow attention, but can be undone in a single moment of subterranean trembling. I was 18 when my grandfather forgot who I was. I was napping on the sofa at my grandparents' bungalow in Niagara, Niagara Falls, waiting for my mother to drive us back home. I'd stayed in the bungalow a hundred times before, in school holidays, at weekends, and when my parents would travel for work. Its thick orange carpeting was familiar underfoot. I knew the feel of its light switches in the darkness, where the edges of the smoked glass dining table protruded, and which of my childhood photographs belonged on which shelf. Mildewed stacks of Chinese newspapers dwelt in the corners, absorbing the polypropylene smell of the VHS, VHS tapes of Taiwanese soap operas that towered in the basement. I memorized the sounds and smells, the landscape scenes, rot and jade, that my grandfather loved and had helped to care for the bonsai tree he kept. I slept comfortably, curled into the summer stickiness of the black sofa until Gong stood at my feet, pointed at me and spoke in the only language he had left. Na Shishay, who is that? So we'll stop there. Thank you so much, uh, Jessica. I think, you know, it's interesting in listening to you say, well, it's, it's messy and I don't know what it's about. But I think that's actually what it's about. It's about an exploration of not knowing. And what does it mean to not know? What do we know and what do we not? And how does that shape our understanding of the world and where we are? And I think that's... Um, that's the kind of provocation we actually need isn't to say as as you pointed out that a writer often comes with a confidence to say why they're an expert and what they know but you're saying what i don't know the names i don't know of of the plants and the of the places and where they come from so um i think that's really the to me a very powerful thing to admit what we don't know have you thought much, um, I guess, theoretically about that, about what we don't know? And, and are there particular um, things that have um, inspired you to think about not knowing? Yeah, I mean, I think, how do I put it? I, I think this kind of story for me was one where I could really, I guess, insert that very personal not knowing. Um, into perhaps some of the more entangled and sort of web-like complicated stories that I think interested me early in my writing and, and early in my academic work as well. Um, and I think it's, you know, a lot of the stuff familiar to, to this audience very likely, thinking in environmental history and multi-species ethnography right now, you know, thinking about just 
these incredibly complex stories that that have different registers, right? So in Two Trees, I, I think I spent a lot of time wanting to understand colonial histories in particular, um, partly to unpack this very troubled feeling I had, which was sort of two-pronged, um, which was, you know, this concern that we have a very hard time thinking about a space like Taiwan as a colonized space, uh, because presumably those lay laying claim to it are not white. Um, that is, it's, it's a real question. Um, Emma Tang has done a lot of really interesting work on this. Um, so we've got this sort of in, um, intra-Asian colonialism, I, I suppose. Um, so there was that question for me, but there was also just the personal dis-ease I had of, you know, loving my grandparents, knowing my family's history, learning more about my family's, family's history, and recognizing that that is set against the backdrop of martial law and what is in Taiwan now referred to as the white terror. Um, you know, those were things I didn't learn about until adulthood. And that was really significant and revealing to me. So there was that sort of that register that I think was the, the overarching interest I had. But then I realized, you know, based on my training, I, I, I'm more used to working on a much more granular level, you know, looking at a particular plant, looking at a particular patch of land and making sense of it. So I wanted to sort of find a way to sort of, I guess, connect those two things. And so that's why it's a story that sort of jumps between those things, but it's, how do I put it? Yeah, it's, it's very intentionally messy, um, I think, in a way. It's, it's sort of delving into that idea of that messiness and the fact that when we want to speak about one register, we're not actually able to separate it out from the others, and those are always, you know, entire stories that we need to tell at once. So... Does that answer the question at all? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I feel like it's it's born of reading a lot of Anna Singh, probably like like many people. <laughs> right, yeah. exactly. It's that kind of um, you know complex, messy world, right? And yeah. and um, trying to make sense of all the different threads and actually make it into something that other people would understand. I mean, in fact, what goes on in our heads is always a messy uh, thing. So. Um, Tina, Lou, you have a question. I do. I think it just builds on on what you just said, Dolly, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Jessica really enjoyed the talk. I haven't read the book, but it's not available here in Canada yet, so I look forward to that. And um, I'm struck by the fact that you said uh, very clearly that yours was the least academic book of the ones that the Greenhouse has done. And I just was thinking as you were answering Dolly's question about whether you'd come to any conclusions about what does this intentional um, acknowledgement of a lack of knowing uh, and, a, and a, 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 a desire to embrace the messiness, what does that offer to academic writing? Like your mm -hmm. academic writing or academic writing in general, is, is there something to be said for doing exactly what you did in our, in the world of academic writing? Um, thank you, Tina. That's a really good question. Um, it reminds me very clearly of uh, an email I received from my PhD supervisor probably in the last nine months of working on my dissertation in which she said, I think you're confusing your voices here because I was writing my other book at the same time as writing the PhD. And she had noticed that as time went on, I guess, I increasingly slipped out sort of 
farther and farther from this academic tone in my dissertation. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever, in case you've ever seen my dissertation, it's written in the first person. It's written um, interspersed with sort of very narrative personal um, accounts of the natural landscape about which I wrote. Um, I think it offers a kind of flexibility. I, I mean, there are definite caveats to this. Um, and I will say, like, even in nature writing, not, not even in the academic sphere, but even in nature writing, there's a lot of pressure, particularly on women, to, um, how do I put it? There's a pressure to divulge. There's a pressure to sort of memoirize your life. That's a huge, a huge part of it. And then there's a simultaneous critique when you do do that. Um, then it's sort of written off as not a serious, uh, not academic, not scholarly, uh, not professional. You know, you get the misery memoir then, right? But if you don't do that, then you won't sell the book, right? So it's, it's a sort of two-way pressure. And I think with that caveat in mind, what it offers to academic writing in particular is, I guess it's that space to open up questions and to leave questions open and to allow the reader to see process. And this is something that I come back to again and again in my writing, um, which is that I'm always writing about going to the library in my books. I'm always writing about the books I take out from the library and the archives I look at. So instead of telling the reader, the information, I would rather tell the reader about the process of me going and learning that information. Um, partly because I think it demystifies the act of being a writer, a nature writer, a scholar. I think that's a very important part of it. Partly because I think the moments in which we do those research are, those, those bits of research are not actually detached from what we actually take away, right? They're not detached from the research product. product. They're always incredibly informed by how I was feeling that day and which book jumped out to me first on the shelf, you know, Th those are really important factors. Um, so I think there's this moment in academic writing where inserting some of that back in, I think can just make process really plain, can make our commitments really plain um, and can leave some space, I think, for the author to still have questions and for readers to, to have some more questions as well, I, I hope. So just to follow up on that, really, um, Elaine had had a, a question here that she, she wrote into chat, and I think it's it's related. It has to do with how do you balance between working academy and you know traditional academic writing and this kind of personal, deep, uh, meaningful form of memoir and nature writing. Um, and so, in 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 that question, though, I think there's maybe a, a a hint to how does one do this themselves? I mean, is it, if here, here we've got a bunch of people on the call, um, you know, who are either pursuing their PhDs or have PhDs, what does one do to, to, to make that move? Is it just making it personal or, you know, what kind of voice does one find? How did you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, it entirely depends on finding the right voice to, I think, suit your subject matter um, and the story that it is you want to tell. I think that's really important. Um, you know, looking at Elaine's question, this, this question of um, balancing, I guess, between acad academ um, academia and academic writing and sort of more memoir and nature writing. I mean, I can tell you that the quick answer on a professional level is that I do think academia sometimes demands choices. Um, I didn't choose to pursue a strictly academic career right out of my PhD, partly because um, of time and commitments. My first book was due to come out 
um, uh, shortly after my PhD was finished, and I knew that I had to be free and able to tour and promote that book. Um, and those are those are serious commitments that you make as a writer. You know, it's the same reason why I've never taken on a full time Monday to Friday job because I actually need to be able to travel really often for my work. So there is that part of the author hustle that I think can sometimes be at odds with academic jobs, but not for everyone. I know a huge number of very successful nature writers, for example, who have academic posts. Um, for me, it's been more of a pick and mix approach. I do, I do short fellowships here, research stays there, um, and sort of keep one foot in, partly because I think it informs my, my sort of more um, wider audience nature writing that I do as my main work. Um, so I've sort of, you know, just sort of kept an ear in the room, which is my, has been my approach. Um, so that's sort of the practical answer. Um, but I think, yeah, finding that voice is, it's an incredibly complicated question in a way. I, I learned probably what that voice was for me through a couple of channels. Um, when I was finishing my PhD, I was, you know, reading a lot of the work that I've already mentioned, um, and thinking a lot about, you know, these wonderful narratives that brought in sort of personal journeys with, um, ethnography and with histories um, in very complex ways. I, I was fascinated by that. Um, and then I also, I actually got a job as an events assistant at um, The Guardian on their creative writing courses. Uh, so I was sitting in on all these creative writing courses, you know, pouring people coffee and getting people <laughs> odds and ends, getting people lunch, um, learning a lot about the practice of, of journalism and the practice of um, literature which were things that, you know, of course I was always really aware of, but I had been in an academic stream for so long, I found that quite freeing in a way to be able to think that, okay, I could try this other thing. Um, and so I started it by blogging, to be honest. I was blogging during my PhD and I was blogging, this is like a very 20, 2010s, 2000s, 2010s answer. <laughs> um, I was blogging a lot and eventually that got picked up into some journalism, which then got picked up into a book deal. Um, so finding that space for me was a sort of route, meandering route through different, different forms of writing. Um, but I don't know, I feel like there, you know, there's so many publications right now that offer exactly this kind of space. You've got places like Eon, you've got places like Orion and things like that, which I think are just incredible spaces for finding this, this sort of hybrid form. You know, I don't even want to say halfway, you know, it's, they're both whole, they're whole things, right? But like being able to sort of really fluidly put them together. Um, so pitch things, I would say pitch things, pitch essays, write things that are, you know, just that little bit more personal and it doesn't have to be heavy. I think Rebecca Altman does this really beautifully, for example. Great advice there. Chris, you had a question. Hi, yes, thank you so much. This is a great talk and I really look forward to reading the book. Um, if I could offer a comment then a question, um, the whole academic versus potentially sort of non-academic or parallel or these different worlds, um, you know, it, it, it's, it strikes me that it sounds like you've been pretty successful in navigating this um, perhaps from more of the outside perspective. And I think it's something for those of us who are in or who intend to be in or you know, solidly are within academia to really reflect on, um, especially those of us with any power, to reflect on what kind of writing we say is acceptable and what kind of writing we say isn't. Uh, the thing that first jumped to my mind was Carolyn Finney's book, 
uh, Black Faces, mm -hmm. White Spaces. I don't know if anyone's aware of this. Um, she's talked about writing the book and the process of it, but also of being denied tenure at UC Berkeley because some of her colleagues viewed that work as not rigorous enough. And I think that's almost a direct quote. So, um, right, and this is happening now. That was in the last 10 years or so, I think. Um, and I think of other people like Laura Savoy, um, and Robin Wall Kimmerer, who are writing in this style, but who have long since had tenure, and in fact are in other sort of hard, quote, unquote, hard science fields. So um, I'm so glad that you're doing this and that other people are showing this kind of writing can exist and both have rigor and exist in a different voice. And I just really hope those of us within academia can do everything we can to, to um, acknowledge and accept you know, the, the value of that work as it is. Um, so to lead into a question, I guess I've been thinking about epistemological issues lately. Um, and so these are broad questions, but just to get your general thoughts, what is knowledge? Um, who's an expert or who has expertise? Um, and when, when someone is viewed as perhaps not being an expert or not having expertise, like you were saying about yourself within Taiwan, certain, you know, landscapes and environments, at what point does someone become an expert or does someone gain expertise? Okay, um, so small question there, right? Yeah, what is knowledge? <laughs> um, I mean, when you say that, I don't know if I could touch on a very specific answer about knowledge itself, but I do think about, I think a lot about, I guess, the ways in which we reproduce knowledge and the ways in which we present knowledge um, and the confidence um, that that takes and uh, perhaps you know as someone mentioned to me a few months ago that the sort of exercise of writing and creating a narrative was actually a confidence trick right um, it's a con <laughs> you know? um, I, I think a lot about the things that I read where you know I'm, I'm a huge reader of you know someone like Roger Deacon um, who you know has these incredibly packed environmental narratives but no footnotes and <laughs> no bibliography very often. And I just think, how on earth do you know this stuff? That in a way, it's like, I find it fascinating to, fascinating to read. And then we'll also be um, like mildly terrified by that because I wouldn't feel the same confidence myself to do that. Like I would never be able to do that. And I don't know if that comes from my background being sort of inculcated in academia and thinking, oh, am I there? Okay, yeah. Um, you know, thinking I have to footnote, I have to give sources, there's that part. But I think it's also, you know, partly being a woman, partly being, I guess, maybe it's just total imposter syndrome, right? Feeling like I, I can never actually fully say something without being 100% sure of it. Um, so I think part of the ways in which knowledge is created and reproduced is, is an exercise in confidence, right? And it's an exercise in, um, I guess, yeah, putting on that show. Um, I do think, however, that when we come to like, you know, the question of who has knowledge and how to sort of work through that, I, I'm, I, I don't particularly like that model, actually. I would really rather talk about the vulnerabilities involved in that um, and the fears involved in that, which is probably why I do end up writing so much about going to the library, you know, partly to let you all know, like, I have done my research, sort of, um, but also that, you know, I, I would never want a reader to come into a book and think, this person, like, knows their stuff, and I find them a bit intimidating, and that's quite scary. Like, I just think that's a horrible approach. Um, but also recognizing that knowledge doesn't have to come in that form, right? Like, 
I, I write a lot in this book about my mom knowing plant names that I don't know. And they're taught to her in different languages um, that, you know, she learned then from my grandfather. And I would say to her, what's this plant? And she would tell me a name in Mandarin. And I would say, okay, do you know what it's called in English? As if that was the real name, <laughs> you know? And she would say, no, I don't. And so I would go looking, at, like looking it up and actually not be able to find it. It wouldn't have a common name, for example. Um, and then I would spend forever searching for, you know, the um, botanical name for something. The, there were these gaps, right? And these are different kinds of knowing, different layers of knowing. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of embodied knowledge we can talk about in relation to the landscape. All of those things, I think, come into it. So this is a book where I, I write a lot about, you know, like, I didn't feel like I had the physical grit to be climbing a mountain in the heat there. Like, <laughs> that was a real challenge for me. Um, but also that I didn't know the languages for naming things and sort of just allowing that to be, th those are gaps in knowledge in the same way that not knowing a fact or not knowing, you know? Yeah. And, and that comment about language, I also was thinking about the issue of the aesthetics of language. Um, and in your passage that you read and how you've talked about it, the difference between the words um, that we write in, in English and the word as you write it in Chinese characters uh, with, with a visual representation. And I was wondering how you thought about that and, and what, what that difference of language affected the way you experience or take in the landscape. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's been incredibly profound and I should, I should sort of preface this by saying I'm functionally illiterate in Chinese. Um, I dropped out of Chinese school when I was seven. So I think a lot, I hear this a lot from a lot of sort of half Chinese, half Taiwanese kids like me who grew up, like we hated going to Chinese school because it was just a terrible place if you weren't speaking it fluently at home, etc. Um, so I never learned to read and write in Chinese until adulthood and even now, like, I can sort of text with family members, but I have to Google translate things. I have to look things up constantly. I, I understand the grammar enough to be able to like figure it out and to be able to construct a sentence. Um, but I think that actually is what interested me because I ended up, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about these real basics and a lot of the basics in Chinese are, are nature related. Um, so, you know, the, the book is a play on uh, wood radicals and the word for forest, which is made of two wood radicals, which look like two trees. Um, so that's every, every Chinese speaker I know likes to make fun of my book title because they're like, that's like the biggest, like, like beginner's Chinese joke. <laughs> um, but I feel like I wanted to sort of embody that because I was learning and it was a book about learning. Um, and so there are, yeah, there's times when I would go hiking up, up, you know, and end up in a bamboo forest. And all I could think about was the process of learning to write the character for bamboo again and again on a page. Um, so it gave me a sort of childlike lens, right? Like, or, or perhaps like a beginner's mind kind of approach to it, uh, which I thought was really, I guess, eye-opening because I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the physical shape of trees and <laughs> little things like that. Absolutely. Uh, Mehdi, you had a question or comment. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, there you are. Okay, thank you very much. I'm, I'm also very happy about this conversation. It's, uh, I, I can say I'm also fond of these messy time spaces that are perhaps mostly recorded in memoirs and nature writing. And 
uh, I wanted to just comment on top of the, the, the things we said about knowledge and about what you can contribute to uh, uh, academia and so, and so and so forth. Uh, and that's what I personally think um, has to do with the, the, the process of writing itself and kind of taking um, a more serious look uh, on style, not as a certain, not, not as a form of uh, decoration or, or of some concepts, but as some form of uh, approach to uh, knowledge. Uh, one could say authorship, uh, even as opposed to authority over, over things. And this is uh, actually very, um, there's no way out of it when dealing with the non-human in specific. Because, uh, and this is something I, I really enjoyed, but also learned from nature writers and how they kind of uh, open up new forms that could be uh, seen as knowledge. So it's not about what it can contribute to academia, but I think it's perhaps academia that must kind of uh, maybe learn to, to see uh, how that process is important as a form of knowledge in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, I noticed it when I started my first book and, and even sort of towards the end of my PhD, when I was able to say, okay, I'm actually not making an argument in this chapter. I'm not, I'm not inve investigating a case study in this chapter. I'm just going to write about the sensation of moving through this particular landscape in this chapter and where I would just focus on, you know, the, the rhythm and the beauty and the timing in a particular phrase and trying to best replicate the experience of being in a landscape through that kind of exercise um you know that sort of craft, craftsmanship that goes into writing in in many ways proved a most pleasurable but b most instructive to me in terms of how i think about landscape because it it revealed to me in a way that you know when we're talking about um environment i you know in my mind at least i always see it as, as something i'm moving through right and so the way in which I would write about it, I think revealed that most to me, more than I probably could have, could have done if I was sitting there thinking, okay, I've got this box of facts and these quotes and this, you know, that I, I wanted to sort of fuse together. And it's also just like the sheer pleasure. I remember saying to a friend, like the sheer pleasure I get from writing a beautiful sentence, even if it's not the most philosophically sound sentence I've ever written is so, uh, incomparable I think <laughs> yeah I think that's just such a, a wonderful lesson for us to really consider is this this pleasure that one can get from writing that rhythm the aesthetics the beauty and I think something that comes back to what you started with is about play and it's it's about playing with you know, the, the world, it's about experiencing it and being in it. Um, and it's about playing with our, our language, um, and being able to bring others with us on the journey through the landscape. Mm -hmm. Right. And that might not be an argument, but that's instead a journey. It's, it's an inv invitation to the reader, um, to be with us. Um, Bathsheba has a question now, so we'll use that as our last question, probably. 
First, Jessica, it's great to meet you. Um, meet <laughs> in the way that we get to meet everybody these days. Um, I had a question kind of following up on uh, Mehdi's question about um, the role of emotion or affect in how you choose to tell stories and, and the ways in which, or if you find um, the kind of emotional tenor that you want a reader to experience to be part of the, the argument or the takeaway or the kind of larger point of the book. And if you could talk a little bit um, about how you craft that, because to me that was one of the most uh, wonderful things about this book is that it has a real, it has an emotional resonance beyond learning about Taiwan, learning about your family. Yeah, I think, you know, I guess the emotional narrative and the emotional arc of a book are always the things that I probably, you know, in mainstream publishing, you probably talk to your editor ab about the most, right? Um, for me, it, it comes back to this issue of messiness because I think, you know, it's a little bit of a moody book. I go through a lot of ups and downs. Um, actually, I mean, all of, all of my writing is a bit like that. My other book is also very moody, probably moodier. Um, but I think for me, it was really important that those sort of valences were there for the reader because I didn't want to write a straightforward redemption journey. And I think that's really important because I just don't think that that's realistic. I mean, I'm sure it happens for some people, but you know, I wasn't writing wild, for example, <laughs> you know, I was writing a book about this messiness of knowing I was writing this book about not knowing. And I write a lot in the book about my desire to belong and my desire to know more and to feel like I'm accepted in that regard. Um, and it doesn't really happen like at any point. Um, so I write a bit about the disappointment in that, right? And I think that's actually really an important takeaway for me because, and it, you know, it's also, again, it's very present in my first book as well. There's no happy ending. There's no, <laughs> you know, like it, it, it sort of ends at a point where it's just like, oh, okay, cool. Now I've stopped writing, you know? Um, but I think that's kind of the point, right? Like we have to make those artificial markers for us about where the story begins and ends. And then we package it up as a narrative and we hope that that, you know, sort of coheres. And I think there is that piece, but it's also the, the reader I'm hoping will take away that sort of learning to sit with discomfort. I think that's a, a big part of, of how I approach this, which is, you know, um, not to spoil it too much for anybody, but the last the last journey I go on in this book is up a mountain where I'm really hoping to see a view. And spoiler, I only get to see fog, um, which is genuinely true, and that's genuinely what happened. And I had to process a lot of my own personal upset about the fact that I did this hike, and I was thinking this is going to be a really great final chapter. I'm going to get the view. I'll be able to like write this great narrative about thinking about my grandfather as a pilot and the aerial view over the landscape, and I'll see the same landscape. I, I didn't get that, and and that that is actually okay. Um, in fact, maybe that's actually the more interesting part, right? So I think writing those emotional frustrations and frames into you know, you know, that's also a chapter in which I tell you about, you know, the botanical history of a particular tree. But the fact that those two stories are tied together, I think is really important to me um, in giving the reader that, you know, slight nudge about how we might think about this thing. Well, I just want to recommend everyone, including myself, uh, to now read <laughs> Two Trees Make a Forest, knowing the pun 
that I Chinese would know that I didn't know um, and that I think is absolutely um, wonderful and um, there it is there are two trees making a forest um, and I just want to thank Jessica so much uh, for this for this talk and so much to think about in the ways in which we in an in academic environmental humanities right uh, the stories we tell, the power we have with those words to evoke emotion in others through emotion of ourselves and writing ourselves into the work in new ways. And um, I know this, this has been great for me to listen to. And so I just want to thank you very much for coming and for speaking to us today. Thank you so much.